All right. Um, now into the scripture this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning of verse 19. Uh, we are again in our draw near series looking uh, to what it means to pray. The series is focused on prayer. What does it look like to pray? And really, how did that take effect scripturally? How did we see what it's like to pray? Here's the first thing that we kind of drew from the core of this passage. Uh, in week one, we looked at that word and that two-word phrase, draw near, as the writer of Hebrews encourages us to draw near with full assurance that we can come with confidence, with authority. We can actually pray to God. You and I can do this because Christ has made a new and living way for us to commune with God through his life and his death and his resurrection. His body broken, his blood shed for us means we have the opportunity now to approach God and not in a way where where there's trepidation or fear, but instead we can do that with confidence, with all authority. We have all access, the ability to access God and pray to draw near to him. Last week, we looked at verse 23 and, and this, this understanding of the fact that we are to hold fast the confession of our faith. We're to hold fast the confession of our faith. And that in holding fast that confession, one of the ways in which we can do that is in prayer. That it's in prayer that we can cling to, that we can hold to, that we can recognize the truth and the implications of the gospel for our lives. And here's what we drew, here's what we or drew from the text, rather, what we recognize is first that we can approach God in prayer, that we can hold fast to the confession, we can believe the gospel because we believe that we are responders, that God has spoken to us. First, so that when we approach God in prayer, we are not the one initiating the conversation. That our God is, as Psalm 121, we saw that he's not one who has to be awoken from slumber. Instead, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he speaks to you and I first. That's where the conversation starts. So we respond to God because he's already spoken to us. Second, we know that God is with us through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Paxton referenced that this morning. There are countless scriptures that help describe and help us understand that the Holy Spirit is not this ethereal spiritual thing that is beyond or outside or away from us. Instead, that you and I as believers have been marked with a deposit, as Paul would write, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is actual so, so we pray because we hold fast to the confession of faith because God is with us. And finally, uh, because we recognize that we are utterly dependent on him. That in Christ, all things are held together. That you and I have deep needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, practical, basic needs. There's a reason Jesus teaches believers to say, give us this day our daily bread. We understand how in need we are of this God. And so as a result, we pray. We're going to look at at two verses that that in some ways kind of close this little minor section uh, of assurance of faith uh, today as we read verses 19 through 25. And we're going to look into 24 and 25 and find another element of what it looks like to pray. All right, so beginning in verse 19, this is Hebrews chapter 10, reading through 25, it says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. You may read those two additional verses. There's this, there's this impetus put, there's this thrust toward a couple of things. One, that, that we ought to be stirring one another up to love and good works. And in order to do that, there's this intentional thought, intentional mental and spiritual activity that takes place because the word that's chosen there is consider. We have to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And that comes with a very specific context. The writer of Hebrews says, look, we don't neglect, we don't stop, we don't quit meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And that some, we kind of talked about this at the beginning of this series. The, the context of Hebrews is that this is a group of believers that is, that is being written to who are struggling with persecution in such a way that many of them are, are retreating back to Jewish customs, older ways. Then the time of Nero and Roman reign that Christians are being persecuted and there is a deep temptation for these believers, these young believers in Christ, to go back to what they knew. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 don't, don't retreat to this system that finds its fullness in Christ. Don't move away from that. Continue to be together. And do it as you see the day approaching. Now, there's a number of things to unpack here, but the first thing that you might really be thinking right now is, hey, I just don't really see anything about prayer in this. Where is drawing near in verses 24 and 25? If the framework for this can can be one in which we understand that the Christian life is to be lived as one in which we constantly pray that we're to draw near to God, that prayer is the place that 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 takes shape, that we hold fast our confession, that that in prayer we have the opportunity to hold fast. What about this meeting together? I don't see anything about prayer in this passage. And this morning we have the unique opportunity of understanding and discovering and seeing that corporate prayer was an incredibly huge part of the early church. And it's why we pray corporately together today. Not our best attempt at corporate prayer that I've ever seen us take part in. All right? We can laugh about this. It's okay. God loves us. Um, But we want to pray corporately. We want to be a praying church because we believe that's what the scriptures reveal to us. I want to look at a couple of very specific words in these passages in 24, uh, and then we're going to walk toward uh, 25 and get an understanding of what prayer looks like and how prayer is designed not only to be the way that you and I communicate with God in a personal way, but in fact, we're called to pray together corporately, to pray together 
together, to pray together as a body. That's what we're called to do. Let's look at a couple of these words very specifically. Number one, uh, in verse 24, uh, it says, let us, or it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What does that word consider mean? Um, the way this word is used is to fix one's thinking or to perceive clearly. So when we say consider in our language, I think to offer consideration is to, is to give credence toward, to, 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 to undertake something, right? Um, but the word consider, I think we use it in a way where it means we think about a lot of options, we think about the multiple possibilities we consider, we take to heart things that possibly could be. The way this word is used in the text ultimately reveals that, that considering stirring one another up is actually looking very attentively, or very attentively rather, and very clearly toward what one would say or what one would need. To think through in a very pragmatic way, to think through in a helpful way by understanding and communicating with someone what it is that we're called to do. So it's not just kind of dreaming up or thinking about, it's actually coming from a conclusion to perceive something very clearly. There's comprehension and there's understanding. And then there's this word. It says, or this phrase rather, uh, how to stir up one another to love and good works Stir up one another to love and good works. What does it mean to stir up? What does it mean to, to stir up one another to love and good works? I want to show you another passage in Scripture where this same uh, verbiage is, is used. Um, you don't, you're not going to see it. Uh, you're not going to see the word stir up, but you're going to get an understanding of its meaning as we look at this text from Acts chapter 15, verses 39 and 40. It says, and there arose a sharp disagreement. This is a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Okay, this sounds totally out of place and completely weird. Where is this stir up stuff that we're talking about? Those words, sharp disagreement, come from the same root and really reflect what this stirring is. It's this passionate thing. This thing that is so passionate that would cause people to go different directions. That's the kind of passion that's embedded in this disagreement. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews is using this word stir up. Same root, but he's doing it in a positive way. Not in a negative way, but he's saying in a unified way, we've got to stir up one another and stir up one another to love and good works. What does that look like? Well, it ultimately means we would encourage one another so passionately, so boldly that it would actually affect the course of our lives. That it would be so passionate, that it would be so powerful, that it would impact us to make decisions that, that are, are truly what we would call life-altering. I don't say that to be dramatic, but I say that to mean that it would cause us, they would stir one another up to love and good works in such a way that people would boldly choose to trust in God in deeper ways 
and find themselves in deeper and different places of intimacy with him through that love and good works that was stirred up, that came up from that passionate expression of that. It came from believers. It came from one another. And then this, love and good works. Uh, I, th- I think this really, this really is, it, uh, plays out as a picture of the way that we reflect core values. Because here's what love and good works is. It's loving God with one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. We get this picture. And that there's a response to that love. It's good works. That we would love our neighbor as ourself. This love and good works pattern that we find throughout all of the scriptures ultimately reveals that first, you and I are called to believe the gospel... We believe that the gospel is love, that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you and I get to experience the very love of God. We believe that, and then we're thrust into not just gospel belief, but gospel life. We live in this gospel in which we believe, so much so that we get to share in good works with one another. Ephesians 2.10 would say this, that we're God's good workmanship, that we're created for good works. That finds its place, one, in the context of living in the gospel community together, but also living that out. Not just loving brothers and sisters in this place, but also loving neighbors as ourselves. So all that to say, we are to be people who accurately, with some sort of experiential understanding, think through and have a definitive idea, that's considering, how to stir up, how to passionately connect with others and see them, by God's Spirit, drawn toward gospel belief in love and gospel life that takes shape in good works. All right, just in a real practical way, that's what is being said. And I would offer that in corporate prayer, that in praying with one another, these things happen. When you and I pray with one another, when we pray together, not just because we're in the same room, but because we experience unity of heart, unity of gospel belief, gospel life, gospel love, the desire to see Jesus glorified and to be enjoyed forever, amazing, incredible things happen. And they happen in the context of what verse 25 says of meeting together. Look, I want us to look this morning uh, at, at a few scriptures in the New Testament that show what it looks like to meet together and how that prayer was a central part of meeting together. Prayer was a central part of meeting together. Essential, rather, and, and central. Uh, and here's the thing. When we read through the New Testament, and we talk about this with, with folks when they, when they join the church. How many of you have joined the church kind of recently-ish? All right, so... so Do you guys remember us talking through and saying, hey, look, there's no real formula in the New Testament laid out for here's what church membership looks like, right? We don't have that. That's not offered us. What we do do, however, in membership is look at gospel principles that help us to understand who the body is and locally how we should reflect Christ, how we should live, how we should be together. In the same way, you and I don't read through the New Testament and get this perfect picture that's laid out for us in the sense where it's like, okay, well, this is the order of worship. 
This is how Jesus wanted our church service to go this morning, right? There are creative faculties involved in, in crafting a service. And we do different things often uh, in our services weekly. Some things we do very similar together, very intentionally the same. Other things we do different. Here's one thing that we know about the history of the church. And we're going to look at two things. One, historical writings about the church. But addition to that, what the scriptures say about what prayer looked like in the life of the church. What did it look like? Here's 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. Again, it's going to seem weird. It's going to seem a little out of place because there's a lot of tongue language here. Uh, But ultimately, in that gifting that Paul describes, he says something really profound about the way the church prays. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. It says this. Uh, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. But I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, another, a neighbor, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? He's referring to the confusion in in tongues. And then this, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. All of this is coming in the context. And Rachel, if you can leave this slide right here for just one moment. All of this is coming in the context of gifting and the brokenness that Paul's addressing in the church in Corinth. In chapter 11, he really talks about the Lord's Supper and how people are not having the opportunity. There are people that are marginalized. There are people that are neglected. There are people that are not having the opportunity to come to the table. And in chapter 12, we get this beautiful picture, this understanding of the body, the fact that people are, we come to this place and there is not differentiation spiritually among us. We, we truly are children of God if we've trusted in Christ. There is no preference one to the other. And he has to do this, Paul has to do this in the context of gifting. And then he gets to this place and he really sums up in this verse that we can read really quickly and often miss. In verse 17 he says this, For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So we learn a couple of things here. One, from the context of chapters 11 and 12, that he's speaking to their actual physical corporate worship services. So often you and I read the scriptures and we read it as it's written to just individual us. And while that is true, we need to understand that this letter was written to a church about their worship. Worship they experience just like this. All of that to say that Paul says, one, prayer is happening corporately. It's a big part of what worship looks like. And two, the purpose of prayer is that people be built up. That prayer, corporate prayer, builds us up. This morning, when we read these words and pray these words for God's church, for one another, and the church universal, people of of all times and places that have come to trust in Jesus Christ, we're praying the very heart of God, and we're hearing that in the tangible human voice of other people around us, other people who have trusted in Christ. It's an incredibly powerful thing. And you know what God does by his spirit in those moments? He does this. He builds us up. So we pray corporately to be built up. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Uh, a number of us are going to be 
familiar uh, with these verses. It says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We recognize this and we see this and we understand that praying without ceasing would mean that we're going to pray anywhere and everywhere, at all places, at all times, giving thanks. And he illustrates this again in all circumstances. But then in verse 25, this is a great memory verse, really short. You can grab this one today. Easy. All right. This is verse 25. And here's what it says. Brothers, pray for us. What is he doing in this moment? He's asking people to pray individually at all times and all places, but he's also asking for the body of Christ, the local worship gathering, to pray for him. As Paul describes his journey and his mission that God has given him, he's asking the corporate church, the corporate body, to pray. One writer, one theologian says this, he says, Paul urges the believers to pray for him and his co-workers in his ministry because this means, and he means by saying this in verse 25, that the members should pray together in their communal gathering because the letter is addressed to the entire church. And Paul's intention would be that this, this book, 1 Thessalonians, is a letter that is read aloud in a place like this. That if we were the church at Thessalonica and Paul writes to us that that letter from which he writes would be read and it wouldn't be this thing where it's like, okay, Paul said to go pray, so let's hit the door and post lunch. Let's just make sure we remember to pray for Paul. No, it would happen in that very moment. That's the design. Paul is asking for people to pray together. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 20. Ephesians 5 15 through 20. We're going to get the context of worship and what prayer looks like in the Ephesian church. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here is what Paul describes the filling of the Spirit looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in uh, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what Paul is writing here, what he's saying here, is he's providing a context in which you and I are called to give thanks to the Lord. And that context is not just giving thanks before our own personal meal that we'll eat today at lunch or, or a meal that we would eat for dinner. But instead, this giving thanks, this prayerful thankfulness, this mode of prayer is embedded in this place where psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are being read. Where is this place? It's here. It's the corporate gathering of the church. And look, historically, from a number of writings, from Justin to Irenaeus to Tertullian to Clement, and those are, are names of people that you think that I'm just making up right now or that I've read incorrectly. Uh, but these are, these are saints, these are church fathers that have lived in the first and second centuries early in the church, and there are countless writings about not just how prayer took place in corporate gatherings, but how incredibly important it was and how they saw God strengthen and build up his church in corporate prayer. All of this to say 
that this is what it looks like to meet together. That you and I don't come and, and, and pray to God in our own individual simplistic way and ask him to meet all the little pet needs that we have, all the things that we want, all the things that, that, that Michael wants. God, answer, God would, you, would you do all of these things? But instead, we corporately pray together as God's holy church. And we see him build us up. And transform us. And we get no better picture that prayer is not just this individual thing, but it's this very corporate thing than the first words of Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. This is what he says. This is Matthew chapter 6, right in the central component piece of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 9. And he tells his disciples this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That pronoun is something that I think habitually you and I have skipped over throughout the entirety of our lives. It's not just my father. It's our father. It's the recognition that when we come to pray, we're not alone. We sang this morning that we're truly a part of God's family, that we've been born again into the family of God, that that it's Jesus' blood that runs through our veins, that spiritually we are connected to God through Christ, that we are covered in his blood, that, that what has happened for us is not just that I was saved from something, but rather I've been saved into something. And what I've been saved into is what we talked about in the series when we looked at 1 John. And 1 John 1, 4 is that this is what the life of believers look like. We live in the gospel because we have fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And so Christianity, our spirituality, our very relationship with God is not merely this individual thing. It's a corporate thing that we're a part of. We are a family together. We so often view our faith as our own. But it's not our own. It's our own. We're to be people who pray together because in praying together, we recognize that. Okay, so so what happens as a result? This famous passage in Ephesians 4 that, that, that we're called to be equipped for the work of ministry by pastors, by people who are called to shepherd, to instruct us. That saints do the ministry, that the people of the church, that believers are true ministers of the gospel. All that yields maturity. Building up in love, this body that grows and reflects who Jesus is. And Paul would say this, and we would see this in that First Corinthians passage, in the Ephesians passage, in the Thessalonians passage. The goal would be that we would be built up. That we would mature, not for maturity's sake, but that we would grow into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Jesus Christ. That we would show Jesus Christ to one another and to the world around us. 
there's something incredibly powerful about recognizing that we are not alone when we pray. And this is the context that you and I have each week to celebrate that and to be a part of that. I want to tell you about something that, that, was, that was a way in which I was stirred up on Thursday morning. How I was thrust toward love and good works. Here's what it looked like. I'm in the gym Thursday morning. It doesn't look like it yet, but I'm getting there. All right. I'm in the gym Thursday morning and I get this text from, from my brother, one of our people. And he says this, just very plainly and clearly. He writes, praying for you and your family this morning. Love you, bro. Praying for you and your family this morning. Do you know what happened when I saw that? I went to this place of understanding and deep appreciation that I'm not alone. That the life of prayer, that my connection to God, which is so reflected in prayer, is not about being alone. That there are people that are praying for me. They're truly praying for me. You know what my favorite part is? He, he texted me and didn't say, I'm praying or I'm going to pray for you. He texted me and said, I, pray, I prayed for you this morning. That it happened. That he did that. And you know what it did? It stirred me up. It caused me to recognize and to believe the gospel of love. And to long for me to go pray for someone else. To pray for him and his family. And then to go pray for someone else. All of this to reflect and to understand that you and I pray together corporately because this is the pattern that we see in Scripture and to help us remember that we're not alone in our prayers. How do we know this? When we come together to pray corporately, we are entering the holy place. We are doing the very thing that Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and will do for us, and that the Holy Spirit has done, is doing, and will do for us. This is Hebrews chapter 7. This is what we see. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, he being Jesus, permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. So he saves those of us who pray to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you and I pray corporately, we're entering the place, we are modeling, we are living out, we're being obediently people that seek to emulate God in the Son. Because this is what Jesus does. He lives to pray for us, to make intercession for us, to ask God's promises to come through for us on our behalf because of him and what he has done. Here's the other thing. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We are so deeply loved in Christ. That Jesus' life, his life, he makes intercession for us. He constantly prays for us. He lives to do that. And then the Holy Spirit would speak and pray for us the things that we ought to pray that we don't know how to pray. You know what I experienced when I got that text message Thursday morning? I got the picture of the fact that I'm not alone. 
in my faith. And I also learned that prayer is not just about me. It's something I'm called to do with you and for you. We get to be a part of that together. When you pray for others and when you pray with others, you are reminding them that they don't walk with God alone, but that God prays for them. That Jesus continually prays for them, that the Holy Spirit prays for them even as they don't know how. And here's the thing, three things to remember today. In prayer, this is what we do. We confess and believe the gospel not only individually, but together. That's why we would meet together. In prayer, we not only believe the gospel individually, but we do it together. Second, in prayer, we recognize that we live in the reality of the gospel. That we live in that. We have brothers and sisters and God as our Father, that we're a part of a faith community. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And finally, in prayer, we're encouraged by fellow believers. When we pray together corporately, when we hear one another pray, we're encouraged and compelled to love and good works. And God, by his spirit, uses us to stir up one another to love and good works. All right, a couple of application points for today for this text. Next week, we're going we're gonna to spend time talking about what does it look like to individually pray. And you can't cover the Lord's Prayer in one week, but that's not going to stop us from being crazy and trying. All right? We're going to really look at what it looks like to pray individually. But I think it's really, really important for us to understand these things before we get to that place that we, that we long to go to. How do I pray? How do I grow my prayer life? How do I get to the place where I experience communion with God in a deeper way? The writer of Hebrews is showing us first is that we have to draw near and we have to come to God knowing that we have assurance, full assurance of faith because our ability to, to, to be with God is not predicated. It's not based on, it doesn't stand on your worth or your works or what you've done. Instead, you go to God in confidence because as you go to God, you're going through the way that Jesus has given you, which is through his flesh. You can pray confidently. You can draw near because of what Jesus has done. Second, we know that we're going to hold fast to the confession of our faith and recognize that prayer, this opportunity, comes for what Christ has done for us. That we can pray because we've been spoken to first. We're not the initiators of conversation, right? That God is, that God is with us. That he meets with us. That we're fully dependent on him. And here's the third thing. Before we get to praying by ourselves, we need to understand that God calls us as a body to be together, to gather, to worship together. And prayer is an enormous part of that. We're called to pray together. So you might be thinking in your mind right now, you know what? I'm going to do, do this thing where I'm going to pray for some people this week. I'm, I'm really going to pray for people. And even as I say people, there's people that are popping into your mind. You're thinking of family members. You're thinking of coworkers. You're thinking about what Thanksgiving is going to look like, right? And how really people need to be praying for you because about what you're about to have to endure, Right? But I want us to respond this morning um, to this in a really unique way. We prayed together corporately. And I want to ask our, our worship team uh, to come. And, and as Paxton and Carson will, will start to, to lead us, we'll do it uh, in a way that's quiet. Um, it's really, really easy for us to, to, to hear the scriptures, to hear these songs, 
to pray a prayer and walk out and, and, and forget that what we're doing here is not just about us and our little own moment in life, but instead we're a part of the corporate body. So here's uh, what I want to encourage you to do this morning. I want to encourage you to pray with one another this morning. As, a, as part of our response this morning, to truly pray together. To practice this. To do this in such a way where we can actually feel it and understand it. And some of you might be um, the opposite of me. You might be a little introverted. All right? You may not love the idea of praying with a person that's across the road from you or seated next to you. Right? They're not going to bite, Christy. They're good folks. I promise. Um, but look, th- that might feel strange or discomforting. But here's, here's what I would encourage you to do. Find a friend, find someone that's in community with you that you know, that knows you, and and pray together this morning, in this moment. And ask God to cause us to believe the gospel and to grow as a community that lives in the gospel. And ask God to make us be people that live out the gospel that would show love to our neighbors. Just those three specific things. God, help me to remember and trust and believe in Jesus. Not just for that moment in the past, but in the way that he longs to save me to the uttermost, right as we read, right now. God, help me to love my neighbor that I'm in community with here. And Father, help me to love the neighbor that I that I that I know doesn't know you. Can we do that this morning and can we pray together? Um, I'm going to do this with you. I'm going to come find some of you, one of you, and pray. We're, we're literally, the music's going to play. The goal is for this to be loud enough to, to make you a little, you know, less scared about praying out loud or together, but not so loud that, you're, that we're like screaming at each other, right? Um, so let's take a few moments pray together. You might just want to do this with your spouse if that's what's most comfortable to you or or a friend or someone near you. Um, Let's take a moment to pray together. Even if it's just these three things because they're incredible things. Gospel belief. We believe the gospel that we would live in the gospel as a community of the church and that we would live out the gospel, that we would share God's love with others. Let's do that this morning and ask God in this moment to stir us up to love and a good works. Amen? Alright, you look like it's going to feel weird. It is! It's totally weird! We don't do I turn my mic off. We don't do this always. We don't do this always. But this is an opportunity to live out and do what the scriptures say. So listen, it's not going to be forever. Um, you might just want to ask the person that you're with, how can I pray for you today? Let's just pray for each other and see what the Lord does. Amen? Awesome. Let's do it.